Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Welcome to Cokesbury United Methodist Church here in Woodbridge, Virginia. My name is Taylor Mertens and I serve as the pastor here at this church and I am grateful that you have decided to be with us to join us today for worship, whether you're streaming this on Facebook or on YouTube or watching or listening later. It is a privilege and an absolute joy to serve as the pastor here and to get to share with all of you, uh, something that God has said about who we are, and perhaps most importantly, whose we are. We are nearing the end of our current series on Jesus's parables of the kingdom. Next week will be our final week, the parable of the net. Uh, so two weeks from today, we'll be starting our August sermon series, and our August series is going to be called That's Not in the Bible. It's going to be the five Sundays in August, and each week we're going to be looking at an expression that is often used by Christians that's actually not in the Bible, and why we shouldn't be saying those things anymore, like love the sinner, hate the sin, and God won't give you more than you can handle, and everything happens for a reason. So if you've ever been curious about those kinds of expressions or things Christians shouldn't be saying, uh, plan to join us during the month of August. On the different Sundays, we'll be looking at one of those phrases each Sunday and unpacking why perhaps we shouldn't be saying them. Uh, across Virginia, uh, certain businesses are reopening. Even some churches have decided to reopen for uh, in-person worship. Because of where this church is situated, located, and the number of cases in our area, we are still uh, maintaining our uh, non-in-person worship uh, sort of decree, and we're going to continue to worship uh, online in this way for the foreseeable future. But whenever we do reopen, we're going to continue to make sure that this is available to, to anyone and everyone so that they can continue to worship with us, whether they feel like they can't come to join with us or they live too far away uh, such that they can't. 
one of the great and strange blessings of this time we find ourselves in is that a whole bunch of people have started participating online in our worship services who don't live in Woodbridge, Virginia. Uh, we've had people from all across the country, even people from other parts of the world, tune in on Sunday morning to, to listen to what God is saying. And it's a, a truly bewildering but also wonderful thing to see how the scope of the church has been profoundly changed during these days, uh, perhaps even for the better. Uh, if you want to know more about what's going on in the life of our church, uh, you can check out information on our website, on the church Facebook page. We also have an online bulletin for every Sunday. You can access it through the link in the video description. It contains our scriptures, prayers, hymns, all that sort of stuff. If that's helpful for you, uh, feel free to reference it during the service. Uh, if you want to know more, if you want to uh, participate more in the life of our church, you can always reach out to me, uh, Facebook or Twitter or through email. All of those things are available online so that uh, I might know what your needs are and how the church can uh, be for you in a way that it currently isn't. Uh, nevertheless, I'm grateful that we are all together in this strange and different way to listen, to pray, to sing, and to respond to what God is doing. So with that, let us just go for a moment of silence as we prepare our hearts and minds for the Lord. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful, wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for making us your thankful people. We thank you for life itself, for the energy your passion for your creation gives us, for friendships through which we discover our lives, for love, that reminds us we are bodies. For that body, the church, where our bodies are forever transformed. It is your good work that you have made us part of your redeeming work. And for all of this, Lord, we are thankful. We are thankful as we now turn to you, lifting up our own joys and concerns, whether we do it silently in our hearts or aloud, wherever we are. We now lift up to you, O Lord, that for which we are grateful and that for which we are concerned. Now, Lord, as you taught us, we pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Our scripture reading today comes from the Gospel according to Matthew in the 13th chapter, verses 44 through 46. I'll be reading from the New Revised Standard Version. You can also find these words in the online bulletin. Now hear the word of the Lord. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure in a field, which someone found and hid 
Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. On finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had, and he bought it. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Our hymn today is number 585 from the United Methodist Hymnal, This Little Light of Mine. Uh, we are going to be blessed today because Gloria Baltimore joined with me uh, last week to record a couple songs ahead of time for worship in the coming weeks. And we recorded a crowd favorite here at Cokesbury, This Little Light of Mine. So join me and Gloria over at the piano and the drums in singing This Little Light of Mine. The words are in the bulletin, but I think you'll be able to sing it without them. So this is this little light of mine. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure in a field. It is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. When I get to heaven, I'm going to shake God's hand, thank him for more blessings than one man can stand. Then I'm going to get a guitar, start a rock and roll band, Check into a swell hotel. Ain't the afterlife grand? And then I'm gonna get a cocktail, vodka and ginger ale. I'm gonna smoke a cigarette that's nine miles long. I'm gonna kiss that pretty girl on the tilt-a-whirl. Cause this old man is going to town. Then as God is my witness, I'm getting back into show business. 
going to open up a nightclub and call it the tree of forgiveness. Forgive everybody ever did me any harm. Well, I might even invite a few choice critics, those syphilitic parasitics, buy them a pint of Smittics and smother them with my charm. Yeah, when I get to heaven, I'm going to take this wristwatch off my arm. Because what are you going to do with time after you've bought the farm? And then I'm going to get a cocktail, vodka, and ginger ale. I'm going to smoke a cigarette that's nine miles long. And I'm going to kiss the pretty girl on the tilt-a-whirl. Because this old man is going to town. Those are some of the lyrics of John Prine's last recorded song before his recent death. And I haven't been able to get those words out of my head over the last few weeks, even the few months, because, well, for one, the chorus is pretty catchy, and I feel just the right amount of naughty singing about drinking vodka and ginger ale and smoking cigarettes that are nine miles long, but mostly because of that last bit that I said from one of the verses about wearing a watch in heaven. Because think about it. What good is knowing what time it is when you've already bought the farm? Now, buying the farm, incidentally, is an expression that came into prominence during the time of World War II. Uh, it was used because an insurance payout from a soldier's death often afforded the opportunity for a surviving spouse to pay out the mortgage on the homestead, i.e., to buy the farm. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, perhaps in a farm, which a man found and then subsequently hid again so he could go back and buy the whole property. Jesus, in all of his parabolically paradoxical wonder, he does some of his best work in hiddenness, like the treasure hidden in the field and the not yet to be understood. That's why the parables leave us scratching our heads instead of really understanding the subject at hand. Even the earliest disciples, they struggled with the stories, with the parables that Jesus told. They struggled with everything. I mean, Jesus, after he prophesied his death and his resurrection for the third time, not the first time, not the second time, but for the third time, Scripture tells us that they did not understand any of these things, that they did not know what Jesus was talking about. The mystery of the kingdom, even when its most literal details are spelled out, it remains inaccessible to the disciples' understanding, which means if we're ever confused, we're in good company. It's why God is God and we are not. It's why the psalmist can say, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is so high that I cannot attain it. But Jesus Jesus is hell-bent on bringing us closer to the hidden mystery, even if we're none the wiser on the other side. Ultimately, Jesus says, the mystery of the kingdom is like treasure hidden in a field. It is something worth selling anything we must in order to enjoy having it at all. Most of the time when we read these two very brief parables, uh, when we read them in tandem with each other, the, the treasure in the field or the pearl of great price, we think of them as proxies for our own individual responses to Jesus's kingdom. That is, we read them as if each of us has the ability and the responsibility to go out seeking the kingdom, and we must be willing to, pray, uh, to pay any price for it. But the parables, they're about more than that. Because the two figures in these two parables, the ones who are so willing to go and sell everything for the mystery, 
it's just as much about the whole church as it is about the individuals who make the church what it is. It's about the church's relationship to the world in which the church finds itself and how in the world those two things relate to each other. You know, right now in the midst of this pandemic that is preventing us from gathering in person for uh, worship with one another, the lines have become even more blurred than ever about where the world ends and where the church begins. And that's really good news. And what makes the advent of our current time such good news for the church is it's a reminder that the church is not a, a club of insiders who happen to have a monopoly on the mystery that the kingdom has been made incarnate in Jesus Christ. The church is not about our respective identities or our good behavior or our income practice. The, the church the church exists as a sign for the world about the mystery the mystery of the light that has already shined upon all of creation. Now, for far too long, the church has operated as if it's this specific enclave, this thing that exists in the world, but it's far removed from the world. The church is the only place that has access to salvation, that the world doesn't have it, that the people outside the church have to come inside in order to be like the rest of us and have access to the one we call the Lord. And there is some truth to that. There is no salvation outside the church. That's a prevailing theological understanding in the church. But that language, that language implies that the church is already full of perfect people and that everybody outside is damned. You know, there's no salvation outside the church. It often leads churches to believing that we that we are the paragons of virtue, that we are the arbiters of everything that is good and right and true, and therefore we believe that evangelism, whatever it looks like, is about making the outsiders look like insiders. It's all about getting people out there in here so that they can look and speak and act like us. Now, what that ignores is the fact that the church isn't full of perfect people. It's full of people like you and me, if it's full of anything, it's full of sinners. But that's not how we act. Instead, we put up signs about how, how welcoming we are. And we're really only welcoming so long as people start assimilating the moment they join this club we happen to call church. Or we take the latest buzzwords and we create slogans for our websites about tolerance, but we don't tolerate anything outside of what we would consider really worthy. Or we invite people to church implicitly assuming that it's our job to fix our friends or our neighbors or our coworkers so that they can have perfect lives just like the rest of us. But you know what that is? That's false advertising. It's like putting a cake in the window of a running store. It only confuses people about what our business really does. And similarly, whenever we market the church, whenever we talk about the church as if it's full of a bunch of perfect people, only getting more perfect, we deceive people as to what we're all about. Notice the, the discoverer of the treasure in the field, he goes back and buys the whole thing. He doesn't bury the treasure off in the best corner with that perfect rose bush, only, only buy that really, really small portion. He goes and he buys the whole thing. You know, the church doesn't exist as a negation of the rest of the world, nor does it stand off as an exclusive country club only for the best of the best. The church is filled with the world, whether we like it or not. 
And the sooner we start liking it, the better off we'll be because without it, none of us would cut it. The church is not perfection here on earth because it's filled with a random sampling of all the broken people the world has to offer, the very people for whom Christ died. People wading through the waters of baptism to live in the light of the resurrection, recognizing that we don't deserve a single beam of it. Rather than procuring only the best part of the field, the man buys the whole thing, complete with sinkholes and poison ivy and weeds and thorny bushes and rodents. And the same thing holds true for the church. If we can't bring ourselves to buy, that is, bring in every condition of our condition, the smart and the stupid, the good and the bad, the holy and the unholy, then we can't pretend that we're a church at all. Maybe you're wondering, why, why all this insistence on the allness of the kingdom? Why isn't it just for the choice and the select few who, who are perfect all the time? Well, in addition to the totality of the field purchased by this figure and the willingness of the merchant to sell all he had to buy the pearl, the power of the mystery is hidden in the most universal of all things, death. Bear with me for just a moment. I know that we don't want to have to think about death any more than we do, especially at a time like this. Though I will note that just about every single product that exists in the world is created and advertised to make us think that we can live forever. But Jesus does his work, his very best work, in the mystery of his own death. It's like the darkness in which a seed is buried in the ground or treasure in a field or a man in the tomb it's in the darkness, in the hiddenness, in the mystery that the world is turned upside down. And as I noted before, as Matthew tells us the man bought a field, there's no reason to think the field wasn't a farm. And in the end, we all buy the farm. Some of us are, you know, get rich. Some of us stay poor. Some of us get sick. Some of us live long lives. Some of us lose people we love. Some of us write books. Some of us teach others how to read or write books. Some of us lose ourselves. Some of us throw it all away because of a foolish mistake we make. But every last one of us, we die in the end. And every single person, whether Christian or not, whether good or bad, will someday come into possession of the field of death in which Jesus has hidden the treasure of his salvific work. As has been said from this place in this church many times, the kingdom of heaven will only and forever be populated by forgiven sinners. Hell, whatever it may be, exists only as a courtesy for those who want no part of forgiveness. In the end, the entire world will buy the farm. And the best news, the good news, is that we are saved by meeting the Lord in his death. Some of us participate in his death here now in the deadening of ourselves in the waters of baptism. Others of us, we only experience it at the end of our days. But Jesus comes to raise the dead. That's his mysterious work, and there is nothing on this earth that can stop him from doing it. But again, that's not how we often talk. As the church, as Jesus' body in the world right now, instead, we take this profoundly powerful, this mysterious kingdom, and we make it out as if it's really quite simple. There are only two types of people in the world, you know, the completely right and the dead wrong. But again, 
the purchaser of the field, of the farm. He doesn't go out and only get the best part. He gets the whole thing. Which leads us to the parable of the merchant and the pearl of great price. You know, the merchant, he's looking for something, and perhaps he knows not quite what he's looking to, for until he finds it, or perhaps it's something that finds him. All of us, in different ways, we are merchants of our own desires. We are shopping day and night for that which we don't quite yet understand or even know. We adopt the latest culturally relevant habits because we believe in the end they'll make us feel whole. We go and we buy the latest Apple product because we convince ourselves it will finally bring order to the chaos of our lives. We, we look for the greener grass on the other side of the, the next hill because surely life must be better than this. And then, if the miracle of all miracles occurs and people stumble into church or online in a stream service looking for something, what is it that we offer them? Hey, um... So glad you're here. Uh, the, the mystery of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, I've got it all wrapped up nice and neat for you. Uh, it's, it's yours for the taking. God has made it available for you. But if you want any part of it, you're going to need to shape up. So, um, you know, you, you might want to write this down. This is important. You need to work on your racism, sexism, classism, ageism, ethnocentrism. You know, stop using styrofoam. Go vegan, gluten-free, eat locally, think globally, fight against gentrification. And, you know, stop drinking so much. Practice civility, mindfulness, inclusiveness. Take precautions on your dates. Keep the Sabbath. Live simply. Practice diversity. Do a good deed daily. Love your neighbors. Give more. Complain less. Make the world a better place. And you still drink too much. If people, if people have ever been evangelized, that is, if they've ever been told the good news by fear-mongering or holding them to higher ethical standards, maybe, maybe they've been converted away from something, but they haven't been converted to the gospel. I mean, who would sell everything they have for some of that? The whole list that I just read for you undoubtedly is filled with good things, things that we should all probably work on. But Jesus comes not to make us struggle under the weight of additional expectations. He says, come to me with all your heavy burdens. I will give you rest. The work of Christ, the hidden mystery of the kingdom, it frees us from the sins that shackle us to a world in which we will never really feel home in. Our home is in the kingdom our home is the kingdom, a kingdom built on love and grace and mercy, a kingdom freely offered, freely given to each and every single person, past, present, and future. And the only thing anyone ever has to do to have it is buy the farm. Because purchasing gladly at whatever cost is the heart of these two parables. It is an utterly precious and priceless mystery. It is something to be enjoyed. You know, at the very least, there should be smiles in churches, not grimaces. We should be hearing good news, not bad news. We should celebrate our freedom, not suffer under our burdens. Because Jesus is already with us, in us, hidden in the world, buried. The church just has the good fortune of sharing that good news with anyone and everyone whenever we can. 
church at its very best is nothing less and nothing more than joyfully discovering the truth that's always been there. The truth that meets us where we are, that Jesus has already gone and done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Which means that in the end, we actually don't have to sell everything for the field or for the pearl because as the old hymn goes, Jesus paid it all. It means that grace is actually free. It's not expensive. It's not even cheap. It's free. It's exactly why the good news is so good. So I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. Yeah, I'm going to get a cocktail, vodka and ginger ale. Going to smoke a cigarette that's nine miles long. Going to kiss that pretty girl on the tilt-a-whirl. Because this old man is going to town. Let us pray. Lord, it is a great mystery that we are your body in the world. But we praise you for it, for otherwise we would be so alone condemned to live alone, to die alone. But you have given us one another in all shapes and sizes. You've given us this strange time in which we can connect with people online in a way we couldn't before. You've given us the church. We confess that looking at the church, O oh Lord, we realize that we do not fit together all that well. But we pray that the puzzles of our lives may please you and entertain you so that in the end we add up to be your kingdom. Help us, Lord, to live with that confidence of your kingdom in the light of your son's resurrection so that when all is said and done, this may be said of us, they were strange, but they sure loved each other. And all God's people say, amen. God gathers us together. God proclaims God's word, and we respond to what God has said. We respond by giving of ourselves, our time, our effort, but we also respond with the giving of our gifts, our tithes, our offerings. I encourage you to give with glad and generous hearts to the ministries here at Cokesbury United Methodist Church. You may do so by giving online. The links for doing so are in the video description. You can also give by sending a check in the mail, or if you live locally, you can drop off your offering here at the church. We have a drop slot by the main doors. But I encourage you uh, to, to truly reflect on what you can give in your own life, but also into the church, that we might continue to help uh, bear this kingdom news for the world here locally and, of course, now globally. So give. Give as you feel led generously to the church. Another way that we respond to what God has said is by affirming our faith using something like the Apostles' Creed. If you're familiar with the words, I encourage you to join me or you can pull up the bulletin to find the words there. But let's affirm our faith together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, 
and the life everlasting. Amen. Each week during the pandemic, when we haven't been able to get together in person, I've been thinking about different and imaginative ways for us to respond to God's word uh, and the time in between Sundays. Uh, So this week, I encourage you to find God in music. Kurt Vonnegut, a noted writer, an atheist, once wrote that the only proof he would ever need for the existence of God was music. Toward the end of his life, he started to share that he had different thoughts about the divine than he did when he was younger. But nevertheless, this week I encourage you to listen to some good music, whether it's secular or sacred. Listen to some music. As I talked about in the sermon, I was mentioning John Prine and his song, Uh, That song was kind of explicitly about heaven and the the Lord to some degree. But God can work through music in ways that we don't quite know or can even imagine. So I encourage you to find some time this week to listen to some music, whether it's familiar to you or not, and listen in a way, in a posture that allows you to hear perhaps what God might be saying to you through that music. Uh, If you find something interesting, if you discover something you didn't know before, I want to hear about it. Send it to me in an email. Share it with somebody else you know. But let's find some way, all of us this week, to listen to some music. But more importantly, listen to how God might be speaking to us through that music so that we can know more about who we are and whose we are. With that, I'd like to offer you this blessing and benediction. May the God of grace and glory, God of the beginning and the end, the God of life, of death, and of resurrection, the God of the field and of the pearl, help you to see the hiddenness of the kingdom. Know that it really is for you, but most importantly, that it's free. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. I look forward to seeing all of you next week, same time, same place. Go in peace.